I think there's a few more going to be joining us. Hope so. First uh, Peter five. Let's turn to First Peter five. We'll read just the first four verses. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. <clears throat> and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. <clears throat> Let's pray. <coughs> Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for this call in Peter to shepherding. So parallel with the call that we have just heard in church expounded relative to Philemon, to shepherd Onesimus. Lord, we ask that thou wouldst bless this uh, lecture by uh, Dr. Van Dodewart and my own additional comments afterward, and that the net effect will be that we will all realize how important shepherding one another truly is. Come and work in our hearts that conviction to shepherd one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do so, <clears throat> that our own souls may grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ through that very shepherding. And that as we evangelize and shepherd others, we might grow in assurance of faith ourselves. So come and bless us now and be near and dear to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Dr. Van Dodewart is our church historian at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. You'll hear in this 19-minute lecture um, how careful of a church historian he is. He studies his material well, and... Um, when he first came, it was uh, painful for me because I was teaching all the church history courses before he came. But I had to cut way back, of course, as the seminary got bigger. And um, I have really learned to appreciate him as, uh, as a church historian. Church history, in my estimation, is just fascinating. Fascinating to study how our forefathers thought and how they responded, and the groundwork they laid for us. And shepherding is something that the Puritans excelled in. And they would, it was interesting, in the time of the plagues, uh, all the Anglicans in London would actually leave and flee to the countryside because they didn't want to die. I mean, going into the room, you talk about catching COVID, this is far worse. They know if they caught something, uh, caught that plague, they 
well, 90% chance they would, they would die. And uh, some of them survived, which was wonderful, but some of them gave their lives. And it's interesting that it was the Puritans who stayed behind and just walked right into the rooms and ministered to their people, knowing that their lives were at stake. Isn't that amazing? The love for souls was stronger than life itself. And uh, therefore, we should sit up and listen, not just to this lecture, but listen to what God's Word had to say to us this morning in church uh, with this idea of shepherding others who have repented and are returning and not just judge people and keep distance, but also intense shepherding is the model of the Puritans, uh, not just because they stayed behind and risked their lives, but also because when they shepherded, they dealt with the big questions. They dealt with, how's your soul faring? How can you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? And uh, they were known to be real pastors, not just one or two of them. Uh, They're not all the same, of course, but the general pastoring element in the Puritan pastorate was higher, in my opinion, than any other group of pastors in church history. I'll say a little bit more about that right at the end of this lecture. So there'll be a 19-minute lecture, and then I'll have maybe 10 minutes to say add a few more comments. So we'll start the lecture now. Thank you for coming to class. In our episode together, this session, we're going to be looking at Puritans and pastoral care. There's been a tremendous uh, fascination and interest in uh, English Puritan writing, in their theology, and its application to the heart, in its doxological emphases that show us the glory and the majesty of God. Uh, What we're going to look at in this uh, session, however, is it's really turned to look at an area that's somewhat neglected and not as much attention is paid to it. That's English Puritans on pastoral care. In another episode in this documentary set, Dr. David Murray looks at the English Puritans on cases of conscience, which is closely related to pastoral care. Uh, But what I want to focus on with you today is looking at more broadly, how was pastoral care carried out in the life of the church? How was it recovered? What were the efforts made Uh, by English Puritans over the period really from the latter end of the English Reformation uh, through uh, the late 1600s. Well, I want to begin with the roots. The roots, I think, really lay in the example of men like Martin Bucer. Martin Bucer was influential 
in John Calvin's life and on the model of shepherding that developed, that was recovered in Geneva. And his vision was expressed in the work concerning true care for souls, really a fourfold vision. First, the recovery of the offices of the church. Second, the recovery of the shepherding of church officers. Third, the recovery of shepherding the flock by these officers. And then fourth, the recovery of mutual shepherding within the flock, members of the flock one to another, and particularly uh, through family worship, through friendships, things like that, the healthy communion of the saints. At the beginnings of uh, reformation and recovery of pastoral care in England are, are seen in Martin Bucer's own move to England and his work interacting with the Book of Common Prayer, his engagements with Thomas Cranmer. And uh, in, in that engagement, uh, Bucer really brought forward his understanding of the church and, and sought to reform the sort of the parish model mentality of the church where everyone was seen as a member of the church regardless of their personal profession of faith in Christ uh, being a a real profession of faith in Christ or simply a historical statement or an outward assent. And so a profession of of heart and life and doctrine is what Martin Butzer desired and and, and what will flow into at least uh, a good number of the English Puritans. Well, the generation after the Marian persecutions Uh, We have really what are the beginnings of English Puritanism properly under Queen Elizabeth at the time of the Elizabethan settlement. And uh, a figure who could be described as a first-generation English Puritan was John Jewell, Bishop of Salisbury. Uh, John Jewell, on becoming a bishop under Elizabeth I, was well aware that the Diocese of Salisbury was at least nominally Roman Catholic and in poor physical and spiritual condition. And so his initial work included uh, physically rebuilding uh, parts of derelict buildings, church buildings, but also uh, actual renovation, removing images, icons, removing the organ, the rood screen, and the altar. That was his first phase. And the second phase of labor was vigorously promoting reformed thought and practice, and particularly as Jewell came into this charge and oversight of the clergy in this area. Uh, We're still working here within a model of hierarchy in the Church of England. Uh, He was struck by the deplorable condition of both the clergy and the churches. Uh, In a sermon in 1561 to Queen Elizabeth's court, Jewell said this, There lack ministers throughout the realm to teach the people to build up the walls of God's church. One poor hireling is driven to serve two or three parishes. The sick have no man to comfort or counsel them. The dead have no man to bury them. I beseech you, my good lords and other honorable and worshipful that are here, that have or may have access to the queen, to put her in remembrance of this, that her grace might be mindful to the house of God. Well, John Jewell as a bishop in his diocese, instituted articles creating standards by which ungodly or incompetent clergy would be removed and a godly preaching ministry be established. Uh, Qualified men coming into office, and and this proved to be a long and slow and painful process. Uh, 
Issues of lifestyle were addressed, along with theology. And For instance, the clergy were forbidden to be brawlers, incontinent, drunkards, or haunters of taverns. So Jewell pursues this and moves to ordain numerous men of better qualification. He engages uh, the work of the consistory court uh, to try to discipline it's the most grievous cases of sin within the flock, as well as among the shepherds, which he viewed as essential and in harmony with recovering a faithful preaching of the word. And by the late 1560s, substantial changes had been effected. A faithful pulpit ministry was established. Things were in much better order in the life of the church, and so he'd labored hard to move the church from Roman Catholicism uh, to a more reformed direction with some success. And so Jewel marks really a beginning of the recovery of church offices and the recovery of the shepherding of souls. And successive English Puritans uh, would uh, seek to champion and work further in areas of care for souls, though it's a mixed picture. Uh, some of the English Puritans, as we'll see, did not take as direct an approach or as forceful an approach for Reformation as John Jewell. I want to turn with you now to look at a few of what we call the Anglican Puritans, and particularly the example of one man, Richard Greenham. Now, Richard Greenham was an English Puritan of the generation following John Jewell. He was born around 1542, died in 1594, and he was passionate about the care of souls in his flock. And uh, we have record of that uh, in his table talk or discussions of pastoral counsel, along with some of his other writings. And in certain ways, Greenham's ministry has really advanced in pastoral care beyond that of Jewell. He labors extensively in his parish of Dry Drayton, preaches on Sundays, catechizes children. He preaches to the farmers weekday mornings before they start work. Uh, he pursues and urges others to engage in pastoral visitation to every home in the parish. So here we see this, this goal of pastoral visitation and shepherding, trying to emulate the model of Geneva and of Butzer. Uh, but at the same time, uh, while his approach to ministry displays really a marvelous recovery and regaining of preaching in the gospel and engaging in spiritual conversations and visitation, Greenham maintained that, that one needed to bring the church to a godly piety before seeking to act uh, to address abuses in the church's life and practice or engage in the use of church discipline, lest the church be torn by division. So the preaching of the word was seen as a primary means to transform people, but the minister had to display patience and seek to maintain peace as he waited on God to work through his word to reform the church. So Greenham's doctrine of the church and ministry leads to a practice of ministry and visitation, which is primarily a ministry of spoken word, a real care for souls, for salvation and sanctification, including rebuking people for their sins, that their consciences would be touched. And there's much wisdom in his approach. Maintained a gospel focus, need to instruct people why changes would be made before making them. The weakness to Greenham's approach was how, while he initiates many spiritual conversations and preaches the word, he doesn't really take hold of the fully uh, scriptural and robust pastoral ministry model of the Company of Pastors in Geneva or Martin Bucer 
in his Concerning True Care of Souls, which saw not only preaching and conversational shepherding, but also the use of a loving shepherding discipline and a, a careful delineation of church membership as essential elements to a vital recovery of the church. In fact, Greenham himself would soberly and negatively assess the fruit of his own ministry as having only led to the transformation of one family. From Dry Drayton, he moved on to London, where he labored at Christ Church, preaching and seeking to counsel uh, people afflicted by the plague uh, when he would die just less than three years later of the plague himself. Well, other English Puritans uh, advocated for uh, more robust models of holistic shepherding and pastoral care. We see this in the case of the Presbyterian Puritans, uh, early figures like Thomas Cartwright and uh, Walter Travers. Uh, They envision a much more thoroughgoing recovery of the church than their Anglican contemporary, Puritan contemporaries like Richard Greenham. Uh, they, They envision a recovery of the offices of elder and minister, a change from the hierarchy of the church that will also bring about a better shepherding of the ministers and elders themselves rather than a hierarchy which leads to isolation and a lack of accountability in shepherding. Uh, Travers, Walter Travers spent time in Geneva studying under Theodore Beza. Uh, Cartwright ministered in Antwerp where he came into direct contact with uh, Genevan models of the church and pastoral care. So the Presbyterians see pulpit ministry as crucial, a holistic pastoral care, including shepherding visits conversationally, and also faithful discipline. And again, among some, an understanding of also the delineation of church membership being an important element to the vitality of the church. And uh, really, the the epitome of this is found uh, a generation or so later in the Westminster Assembly, where the confession of faith, the the form of church government, and the directories for worship lay out really a holistic model for the recovery of church offices, of shepherding of those offices, shepherding the flock, and then uh, members shepherding one another. For example, the directory of private worship, uh, family worship in the home, the the parents, the father, or in the father's absence, the mother, uh, taking lead in ministering the word to children and to uh, other household members. So really in the work of the Westminster Assembly, we see uh, what we call a Bucerian approach to pastoral care being fully recovered in principle, though in practice uh, that would still be challenging to work out as it uh, continues to remain a challenge in any age of the church. An example, one just uh, less than a generation after we could say right following the Westminster Assembly would be Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter writes the work of the Reformed Pastor as well as a Christian directory. Uh, he is seen as a, an English Puritan who had a passion for shepherding and pastoral care and worked hard to carry it out in the town of Kidderminster and uh, did so uh, with significant fruit. Well, I want to turn finally to look at some of the Congregationalists, Congregational or Independent Puritanism. Among these, there are great figures like William Ames, uh, who writes extensively on the conscience, 
uh, following in the tradition of other English Puritans, uh, arguing that the minister with the elders is called to not only a conversational shepherding of souls, but because of the hardness and deceitfulness of heart, personal application is needed to correct sin and the exercise of discipline uh, to shake the securities of those who are comfortable in sin. Aims held to a high and rich view of shepherding souls. Now, we see this as well in John Owens, the true nature of a gospel church, a, a marvelous work uh, from a congregationalist perspective of uh, recovering uh, the patterns of a gospel church. And one of the things that we see, particularly among the congregationalists in the American context of the colonies, uh, but also among the English Puritans more widely, is a relationship between the church and the civil magistrate in shepherding. The roots of this uh, lie again in the Reformation. Martin Butzer and John Calvin had championed what they viewed as a scriptural understanding of the church and the civil magistrate, particularly in cases where parishioners' sins violate civil law. So in his work concerning scandal, Calvin, for instance, says this, we ought to keep a sharp lookout that there are no opportunity for such scoundrels to do harm. We must resist their stratagems. And as far as it's our concern, must take care their frauds and wrongs are severely punished by the magistrate, that those to whom the word of God is a laughingstock may meet their deserts by having the hangman for a teacher and the gallows for a school. Well, the same kind of pattern and thought of this working together between a civil magistrate and the church is evident among the English Puritans. We can think of William Perkins, who was noted for ministry as well to those facing justice from the civil magistrate, which he saw as a providential means uh, for bringing about repentance and providing gospel opportunity. Uh, Perkins, in one case, met a convict on his way to the gallows and saw this man was filled with fear. And he spoke with him, and he prayed with him, and he pointed him to the all-sufficiency of Christ with the result that this convict, this man about to face his death, was brought to assurance of salvation and peace just minutes before his death. A similar occasion is found in the annals of English Puritans in America. John Winthrop records the case of a young man. He was in prison awaiting trial. And in prison, he started weeping and praying confessing his sin to the Lord. And the jailer heard him from the other side of the wall. And he ran to the local Puritan minister and told him that uh, this young man awaiting trial was confessing his sins. And so uh, the minister came running and came to minister to this young man to encourage him in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the result was the repentance of and perhaps the conversion of this young man. And he confessed the truth to the civil magistrate, a truth that was worthy of the death penalty. And he faced that death penalty, John Winthrop records, with calmness and peace and anticipation of heavenly glory. While we could spend an entire course on Puritans and pastoral care, let's just sum up with a few summing points. English Puritan pastoral care and all its streams of thought and practice, there's a diversity there, but all of them had a passionate concern that members of the flock would come to personal faith in Christ 
would know him, love him, and would grow in grace. Uh, English Puritans in their models of pastoral care uh, longed for and sought to train and mentor men for ministry and challenged each other to faithfulness in ministry, albeit through different models and ways of doing so. And third, we do see English Puritans diverge substantially uh, among themselves in their understanding of the doctrine of the church. What delineates the church? What is church membership? And what is the place of discipline in relation to shepherding? And so there is divergence there and some difference that affects uh, the way they carried out their ministries. And then fourth, uh, we do see uh, they see shepherding, particularly in cases of grievous sin uh, that violate civil laws or criminal laws, uh, working hand-in-hand with the civil magistrate, uh, seeing that as a means uh, together uh, to work with the community with the government that God has ordained to bring about repentance and peace and integrity uh, in the life of the church and in the life of the community. Okay, I just want to enlarge on uh, two things that that Dr. Van said. The first, he made reference to a fascinating story about how William Perkins, the father of Puritanism, who died at 44, uh, ministered to prisoners, and one man in particular. And uh, Samuel Clark records that story in very graphic terms, and I'll, I'll just say it in my own words here. So Perkins was going to jail every week to minister to the prisoners, and then when it came time that one of them had to be executed, he, he was there. And as the man began to climb the ladder to his um, beheading, uh, he, Perkins could see that he was trembling. And he said to him, um, are you afraid to die as he's going up the ladder? And the man said, uh, well, I'm not so much afraid to die as I'm afraid of what's beyond, beyond death. And Perkins said, say you so, come on down, man. And the prisoner, which was unheard of, came back down. And uh, Perkins put his arm around him and began to pray earnestly. And prayed about the enormity of sin and the dreadfulness of sin and how sin makes us hell-worthy. And he prayed so, said Clark, until these tears began streaming down the man's face as he felt the guilt and the abominable nature of his sin. And when Perkins sensed his guilt and his confession, Clark writes, then he began to preach about Jesus Christ who takes away all sin and His blood cleanses from all sin. And he so prayed on and on, says Clark, until the tears began to flow again for forgiveness that there was in Jesus Christ. And then Perkins uh, closed off his prayer and said to the man, Now you can go to die in peace. And the man uh, climbed the ladder again. And this time he did it nimbly with no fear, no hesitation. And uh, he got to the top and before they beheaded him, he told the entire crowd, you've got to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That just uh, shows you the the heart of the Puritans. And 
Secondly, he made a quick reference to, to Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was actually one of the greatest models of all of Puritan shepherding. He spent two full days from after breakfast to supper time each week pastoring his flock. He called it catechizing. He would go from home to home. And Baxter made this famous statement. He said, sometimes one hour of pastoral shepherding ministry with a family will do more good than a thousand sermons. And he wasn't trying to degrade sermons. He had a high view of preaching. But what he was saying was, when a pastor has wisdom and could question people and find out exactly where they're at spiritually and then give them counsel for that particular need. You see, it's like a physician giving a particular medicine for a particular need. That can do them sometimes more good than, than many sermons. So Baxter and the Puritans saw the pastoral counseling as kind of an overflow of preaching. But now the pastor coming in the home and administering his shepherding skills as, as they called the pastor, as a physician of souls. And so, here's the interesting thing. I want you to think about this. My good friend Errol Hulse, who passed away about a year ago, a Reformed Baptist pastor in Leeds, England, who had spent his early years of his career in, uh, in uh, going on preaching tours with Billy Graham, but finally had to leave Billy Graham as he became persuaded of the doctrines of grace and the errors of Arminianism, but also because he did some study on the converts that came forward at Billy Graham's crusades and determined, he wrote a book called The Pastor's Dilemma, he determined that no more than 2 to 5% had any lasting effects. And the conclusion of the book is because it wasn't followed up with this discipling, shepherding, one-on-one conversation. And you see, that's where the Puritans were so good. So you contrast um, Billy Graham's ministry with little follow-up. Many of the people that came forward raised their hands, signed a card, came forward and were assured instantaneously by one of his associates that they now had assurance of faith and they were Christians. They walked away as Christians in their own mind. Many of them never even went to church. Oh, but I'm still a Christian. I, you know, I, I raised my hand at a Billy Graham crusade. You know, the Puritans would say, that's anathema. You've got to follow it up with counseling and one-on-one shepherding. So that's what Baxter did. Now, here's what Baxter could say before he died. He said, when I came to Kidderminster, scarcely one home on a street had anyone in it who feared the Lord. And by the grace of God, after 20-some years of ministry here, there is scarcely a home on any street in Kidderminster that does not house a child of God. And then he made this amazing statement. He said, by the grace of God, and this was to no credit of him, and he wouldn't see it that way, but he said, by the grace of God, I do not know of a single soul in Kidderminster that professed grace and has fallen back. Wow. 
You get it? The shepherding, shepherding, shepherding. Working with people when they fell into sin. Disciplining, loving, caring. You see, pastoring and preaching really belong together. And that's what Richard Baxter's ministry so powerfully uh, emulates. And so, Baxter then writes out a lot of these cases, and different cases of counsel, as he calls it. Puts together a Christian directory. It's a four-volume work in today's printing, but it's packed into one great big volume with big pages, small print, called the Christian Directory, which he deals with hundreds of different cases of counsel. How to shepherd souls. So Baxter, in my, my opinion, is a very key key person to study in Puritan shepherding. Uh, Joseph Align, was a mo- he modeled his ministry um, along the same lines as Baxter. He sometimes would spend three days a week uh, just, just shepherding all day long. Final thing I want to mention. The pastors uh, also helped shepherd their people in doing family worship. This is something we've lost, regrettably. But what would happen is when a pastor would uh, perform the marriage of a couple of his church, what he would do is he would, um, first of all, the, 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 the wedding present he almost always gave him was William Googe's Domestical Duties, which is an 800-page volume, large folio volume, expensive for the pastor to give it, but 800 pages on how to live the married life and how to rear children, filled with all kinds of practical directions. Now, you probably know that Scott Brown and I went through that entire thing, editing every single sentence, and we did reprint it um, in readable contemporary language in three volumes today uh, by William Googe. It's, uh, it's a great, great classic. Anyway... So what he would do, uh, the typical Puritan pastor would give this book of William Googe or one of the other 29 books on marriage that the Puritans wrote. And then he would follow it up afterward and say, after you get back from your, they didn't call it honeymoon, but your little time together, I'll come over, you invite me over for a meal, I'll come over and I'll model, in the first weeks of your marriage, I'll model how to do family worship for you by doing it with husband and wife. And then, if you ever want me to come back and do it again when you have children, I'll do that as well. So, the father, or I'm sorry, the husband then, received hands-on instruction in the form of the pastor doing family worship. This is all part of the whole shepherding picture. Let's pray. Gracious God, We thank Thee for this time together, this uh, brief talk. And as we look, God willing, next Lord's Day morning at Puritan preaching and how this coalesces with shepherding, we pray it may be edifying for us and that we may uh, take this twin focus also today all around the world and implement it in the lives and homes and families of people and that thou wouldst make it effectual. O God, bless the preaching of thy word, 
and bless the pastoring of thy word for the conversion of many, for the maturation of many, and for the glory of thy great name. In Jesus' name, amen.